Oh, okay. <laughs> You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks for listening to Hold That Thought, and welcome to the third episode in our series about memory. Certain events and the memories of those events are so powerful or so traumatic that their effects can be felt for generations. What can be learned about how individuals react to memories that aren't even their own, but those of their parents or grandparents? To explore this issue, we've turned to Aaron McLaughlin, Associate Professor of German at Washington University in St. Louis. One area of McLaughlin's research deals with second-generation Holocaust literature, texts written by the children, the sons and daughters, of those who experienced the Holocaust firsthand. We'll learn more about specific authors and their works shortly. But first, let's hear a bit about the second generation itself and how it came to be recognized as a group. People started realizing, researchers, especially psychologists, beginning in the 60s but into the 70s, that these children born after the event, that they were forming a distinct group, that there was actually something that linked them together. And throughout the 70s and 80s and then in the 90s, a lot of these people began to write books about what they're doing. And as a literary scholar, that that's something I found very interesting, that what we know as the second generation sort of started to bubble up in the 70s and 80s as a kind of a generational consciousness. I'm really interested in these moments where there seems to be what's maybe been referred to as a memory boom, where you have a generational tipping point where suddenly this becomes a burning issue. So there's this huge body of literature now called second generation Holocaust literature, dozens and dozens, hundreds of texts, films, journalistic works. And for me, what was interesting was that a lot of the things being exhibited by the the literature by the sons and daughters of survivors were also being exhibited by the sons and daughters of perpetrators. Their experiences were very different. And the way in which they accessed these experiences and the memories of their parents were different, but structurally, they were in the same position. And so for me, that was a very interesting kind of cross-cultural perspective on genocide that the cultural legacy, the cultural memory exists into the second generation. And now we're finding out beyond that on both sides of this very traumatic, violent event. A term has been developed for the type of memory that the second generation experiences. Some scholars call it post-memory. Let's hear from McLaughlin about what that means exactly and about how it's expressed in second generation literature. The word that has been developed to describe this access to someone else's memories. I mean, when we talk about memory, the primary understanding is that we can only remember something that we've experienced ourselves, right? The type of memory exhibited by both these groups is obviously not personal memory because they don't remember. This is not an experience of their own. And the cultural studies and a literary scholar, uh, Marianne Hirsch, has developed this term post-memory to describe the experiences and the artistic expressions of people who are so fascinated by, consumed by an event that was experienced by their parents. So this post-memorial access is really the ways in which these two different groups are trying to get at this event that seems to have shaped 
their lives before they were even born. And on the side of the perpetrators, it really has to do with the children trying to reconcile an image of the parents that they love, they may have troubles with, they may rebel against, but, but their own parents, usually the fathers, with what they know and what they've learned of the Holocaust in either the meat by the media or the educational system and trying to reconcile these two views of the father whom, you know, one loves very dearly often who might have participated in very violent crimes. For the the children of the Jewish survivors, it often has to do with sort of coming to terms with the parents' continuing traumatization of an event in which they lost mostly all their family members, in which they themselves nearly died uh, or were certainly targeted for murder, and trying to understand one's own place within a family structure that's been really decimated and trying to understand what one's role is in that family, because often the children were seen as this sort of new hope, which is a very hopeful image, but often that's a lot of pressure to kind of carry forth a family legacy for maybe dozens of people who have died. Different second-generation writers have responded in different ways to this, but generally speaking, sort of the idea is to try to come to terms with this, try to understand it in order to integrate it into one's own life narrative as a positive force rather than a negative one. So what role does art and literature play in this sort of integration? In the next part of our talk, McLaughlin brings up some of the specific authors and texts she has studied, including the famous graphic novel Mouse by Art Spiegelman. So the writer Anne Karp, she's written a book called The War After, and it's really about her experiences trying to find a place in her family that isn't suffocating and overwhelming because her parents sort of place all of their expectations on her. And not just the expectations for themselves, but really it's almost as if there's this imaginary, invisible family standing there and everything is sort of put in her hands for the future. And for her, it really becomes sort of this tension between wanting to honor her parents, honor her past, love her parents, but to have a little space for self-definition. And one of the things I focus on in my research is how that kind of struggle exhibits itself somatically on her body where she develops this terrible rash and she scratches herself. She even likens these wounds that she creates to stigmata. And I compare that to the daughter of a Holocaust perpetrator, in this case, a woman named Irena Anhalt. Her struggle with her father exhibits itself where she actually starts to scratch swastikas into her own skin. What I found very interesting is how these people who had the absence of the memory, they didn't have these primary narratives they almost are marking themselves because it's all imagination, it's all sort of absence, and they're trying to find some sort of way of turning it into presence. And it's, you know, it's deeply disturbing. Of course, not all second-generation writers take that kind of very extreme, almost somatic reaction. One writer in particular, and he's probably the most famous of all second-generation artists, is Art Spiegelman, who drew his two-volume graphic novel, Mouse, 
he spent 15 years on this graphic novel project trying to sort of imagine his father's experiences graphically, but also to represent his struggle with his father and to try to come to terms with that. It's a deeply ambivalent book. It doesn't, you know, sort of say, oh, you know, now that I understand my father, we can all rest happy and, you know, this is all wonderful. But there is a sense in which by embarking on this project and really attempting to shape his father's memories in a way which have meaning for him, Art Spiegelman, that he's able to kind of integrate them in a more positive way. In some ways, it's almost a kind of um, a roundabout way through this mediation of art, literature, photography, film, whatever sort of artistic expression. There's a way of maybe safely getting access to these very difficult memories and difficult legacies and transforming them into ways that aren't destructive. And and that, you know, in general, is what art does, right? Art takes everyday life experiences and transforms them into ways that allow us to see them a little bit differently, to gain some sort of insight, even that if it's not, you know, ultimate closure or meaning. It's a prism through which you can kind of see aspects that aren't readily apparent in a very straightforward historical narrative. When first explaining how members of the second generation deal with the memories of their parents, McLaughlin talked about writers integrating these memories into their own life narratives. The relationship of memory and narrative is worth exploring a bit more. How are these ideas connected? For me, I think memory is the narrative that we tell about our lives. That is memory. And so when you look at it as a sense of narrative, we are telling stories about our lives and we're trying to integrate our experiences into the fabric of these stories so that they make sense, so that they present us hopefully in a good light, so that we can live with these memories. And so I'm really interested in that, how memory is transformed into kind of a social narrative, but also individual narratives. And so one sees the way in which memory extends over the generations. It doesn't end with you know, with the death of the person who actually experienced the event, that these memories kind of shape the self-understanding and understanding of the family well into the second, third, fourth generations. Many thanks to Erin McLaughlin for contributing to Hold That Thought. Her book on this topic is titled Second Generation Holocaust Literature, Legacies of Survival and Perpetration. For more ideas to explore, you can find us at thought.artsci.wustl.edu. That's thought.artsci.wustl.edu. Thanks for listening.